It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Her tomb has never been found. Hundreds of statues commemorating her have been destroyed. Many tried to eradicate her from history. Yet she remains one of the most recognizable figures of the ancient Egyptian world. Little is known about Queen Nefertiti, but from the few surviving records, she was an Egyptian queen and perhaps pharaoh unlike any other. Nefertiti and her husband Pharaoh Akhenaten were some of the most radical and controversial figures to ever rule ancient Egypt. They undertook a massive campaign to change the Egyptian national religion and expand the political power of the royal family. Nefertiti and Akhenaten built an entire city founded on their new policies and beliefs, but that city was buried by their successors and lost to time for over a thousand years. It wasn't until the late 1800s that historians rediscovered the city and the remarkable couple who built it. Today, Nefertiti remains one of the most famous historical figures whose final resting place has never been found. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures on the ParCast Network. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing Nefertiti, one of ancient Egypt's most famous and mysterious queens, and possibly one of its very few female pharaohs. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. Now, back to the life of Nefertiti. Despite living and reigning over 3,000 years ago, Queen Nefertiti of Egypt is still one of the most recognizable faces in ancient Egyptian history. Revered both in her time and ours, Nefertiti and her husband, Pharaoh Akhenaten, ruled over a period of great prosperity during Egypt's 18th dynasty. They used their positions as leaders to influence religion, art, and the status of women in ancient Egypt. By the middle of the 14th century BC, Egypt was flourishing, the most powerful and influential country in the world. It was the era of the Tutmosid dynasty, and Egypt was the seat of the world's power, innovation, and intellectualism. Egypt's position in the north of Africa, bordered by the sea and nourished by the Nile River, had always afforded the country the luxury of easy travel and abundant natural resources. Pharaohs in recent centuries had taken advantage of these gifts to take over neighboring countries until Egypt's ancient empire reached from the Sudan and Libya 
all the way to Iraq and Syria on a modern map. Tributes and gifts from conquered regions flowed into the royal coffers, and artists and intellectuals flocked to the Egyptian capital of Thebes as the city became a cosmopolitan destination. The royal family lived lives of unimaginable decadence. They built tributes to the gods and erected enormous statues of themselves in the desert. The 18th dynasty also brought unprecedented freedom to the women of Egypt. Though most women at this time were not educated or trained in any career except motherhood, middle and upper class Egyptian women could legally live alone, own property, and even bring legal action against others in court. Because she lived so long ago, not much is known about Nefertiti's birth or early life. In fact, historians aren't even 100% sure who her parents were. The lives of Egyptian royal families were extensively documented in inscriptions and pictures left in their tombs. But Nefertiti's parents are never directly mentioned in any surviving records, implying that she was not originally a member of the Egyptian royal family. She was likely born around 1370 BC during the reign of Pharaoh Amenhotep III. There are a few theories about where she might have come from, though none are universally accepted by historians. One of the more prominent theories identifies Nefertiti as the Princess Tadukipa of the Mitanni kingdom in Syria. According to Mitanni royal records, Tadukipa was born around 1366, making her and Nefertiti roughly the same age. Records show that Tadukipa's father, King Tushrata, sent his daughter to Egypt in order for her to marry Pharaoh Amenhotep III and become one of his secondary royal wives. Amenhotep III died shortly after Nefertiti arrived in Egypt, leading some historians to speculate that Tadukipa married Akhenaten instead and renamed herself Nefertiti. But most historians think that Tadukipa may actually have been another of Akhenaten's wives, a woman called Kia in Egyptian royal documents, and that Nefertiti was someone else entirely. Although pharaohs traditionally married the daughters of royal families, including their own cousins and sisters, Amenhotep III broke from this tradition to wed T, who was not royal but came from a family of wealthy landowners. T was even named as Amenhotep III's great royal wife, meaning she was the most superior and influential of the pharaoh's various wives and the great royal wife's children were most likely to inherit the throne. T was Amenhotep III's favorite and most powerful wife. Historians have found evidence that T was actually one of Amenhotep III's trusted advisors and took a more active role in foreign policy than most great royal wives before her. T wrote many royal letters to foreign rulers, which was highly unusual for an Egyptian queen but it is clear from their responses that her opinions and advice were highly regarded in the world of ancient politics. Following his father's example, Akhenaten might also have married a woman from outside the ruling class, Nefertiti. It's notable that a pharaoh could have married a woman who wasn't his cousin or sister. Incest was common in ancient Egypt, especially amongst the royalty. Pharaohs were viewed as gods, and inbreeding was considered a practical way to preserve the divine bloodline. Pharaohs frequently married their sisters and even their own daughters. That's disturbing. By today's standards, definitely. But in 3000 BC Egypt, becoming a pharaoh's wife was one of the highest honors a woman could achieve. 
it guaranteed her a life of excess and comfort. A few women did become pharaohs in their own right, but this was a very rare occurrence. Whether Nefertiti was a foreign princess, Akhenaten's cousin, or merely the daughter of a rich Egyptian family, she appeared on record suddenly around 1351 BC when Akhenaten ascended to the throne. Nefertiti was an uncommon name in ancient Egypt. It translates to, a beautiful woman has come. Her beauty was renowned in Egypt, and her likeness graces countless pieces of artwork from the time. The most famous of these pieces is the Nefertiti bust, a well-preserved and beautifully painted 19-inch tall profile of the queen, which was excavated from the workshop of famed ancient sculptor Thutmose by German archaeologist Ludwig Borchardt in 1912. The bust became the centerpiece of several Egyptology exhibits in Germany throughout the 20th century, and generations of people were intrigued by Nefertiti's beauty and arresting gaze. The bust, along with several other pieces discovered around the same time, inspired historians to uncover the mysteries of this great queen. In artwork from the early days of her marriage, Nefertiti is pictured standing just behind her husband, Pharaoh Akhenaten, as was the traditional pose for wives of the king. One such depiction of this partnership comes from a wall carving found in the tomb of a royal vizier in the Egyptian city of Thebes. The carving shows the young couple greeting their people from a window. While Akhenaten leans out of the window to address the crowd, Nefertiti stands behind him, partially obscured. As time went on, however, her prominence rose in both art and matters of state, and she began to be depicted standing both beside Akhenaten as his equal, and even was featured in some depictions by herself, without her husband. The evolution of Nefertiti's depictions is one of the biggest sources that historians point to when they discuss her power within the Egyptian royal family. At the time the first carvings were made, the young king and queen ruled their empire from Thebes, the center of the Egyptian empire. Thebes, also known as Wast, or City of the Scepter, was a large city of roughly 100,000 inhabitants on the east bank of the Nile. Thebes had been the seat of religious and state power for many generations, and Nefertiti and Akhenaten lived there for the first four years of their rule until around 1357 BC. During this time, Nefertiti gave birth to the first three of their eventual six daughters together, Meritaten, Megatatan, and Ankesimpaten. Nefertiti and Akhenaten were often pictured together with their family in affectionate poses, and they wrote many fond things about one another. Akhenaten often commissioned work with inscriptions praising his bride. He said Nefertiti was sweet of love and possessed of charm. It appears that Nefertiti and Akhenaten enjoyed a genuine romantic connection, rather than the purely political marriage so many other monarchs settled for. The sense that the two truly loved each other likely endeared them even more to their Egyptian subjects. But not all were happy with the royal couple. There was a dark religious brotherhood which threatened the new royals, the cult of Amun-Ra. To counteract the cult of Amun-Ra, Nefertiti and Akhenaten formed the rival cult of Aten in a campaign of religious reformation that's the defining legacy of Akhenaten's reign. Egypt was polytheistic when Akhenaten took the throne. The people worshipped thousands of gods, a mixture of humanoid and animal-like deities. There was Anubis, the jackal-headed god of death, Happy, the god of the Nile, 
Isis, the goddess of fertility, and Seth, the god of chaos, just to name a few. The sun alone was associated with several different gods. Each represented a different aspect of the star. Amun-Ra, the oldest and primary sun god, represented the noonday sun. Aten represented the disk of the sun. Kefri was the morning sun. Most of the major gods had cults, or groups of priests and followers dedicated specifically to them. Egyptians worshipped the entire pantheon of gods, but they usually had favorites to whom they prayed most often. As Egypt's wealth grew throughout the 18th dynasty, the temples did too. People paid more tithes to the gods, which bought bigger and grander temples and increased the power and influence of the priests. By the end of Amenhotep III's reign, the religious cults in the capital city of Thebes had grown so rich and their connection to the gods so influential that they rivaled the power of the pharaoh himself. The most powerful of these organizations was the cult of Amun-Ra. And as it became more and more clear that Akhenaten and Nefertiti had radical changes in mind for the Egyptian people, the cult began to prepare for a holy war. Up next, we'll cover the religious conflict between Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and the cult of Amun-Ra, as well as the new monotheistic religion that the pharaoh tried to establish. Now back to the story. At around 1353 BC, at the beginning of Queen Nefertiti and Pharaoh Akhenaten's reign, the religious cults of various Egyptian gods had become rich and powerful enough that their authority threatened the pharaohs. For generations, pharaohs had used the cult of Amun-Ra as a sort of national bank, donating enormous amounts of money, which the cult then put toward the construction of temples and the salaries of the priests. Tithes of money and grain collected from the people were stored at the Karnak Temple complex in Thebes. Donating so much made the pharaohs appear devout, and storing supplies at the temple made it easy to retrieve them if disaster struck Egypt. But Amun-Ra was a secretive god. Despite being one of the sun gods, he was said to inhabit a lonesome, dark shrine in the center of the temple complex, which none but the higher priests could access. The high priests had both a direct line to Thebes' most important god and access to most of the pharaoh's wealth. It was an arrangement that worked for both parties until, as the empire grew, the priest power swelled out of control. Akhenaten and Nefertiti soon put an end to that. They worshipped one god above all others, the sun god Aten, and formed their own religious cult, the cult of Aten, around him. The Egyptian sun gods had traditionally represented two opposing aspects, the rising sun of life and the setting sun of death. But the cult of Aten rejected the death side. Instead, the royal couple emphasized Aten's life-giving principles above all else. By around 1344 BC, the royal couple were declaring the sole worship of Aten, who they considered the one true god. Notably, this is believed to be the first known instance of monotheism in recorded human history. Aten gave light and life and watched over his creations from the sky. He was at once an aloof god, always depicted as a disc hovering over his people, rather than as a humanoid figure walking among them, and a very personal god, with his rays reaching down to touch humans. For Nefertiti and Akhenaten, Aten was a representation of their own rule. 
They were, as a pharaoh and his great royal wife, close to deities themselves in Egyptian belief. They were youthful and ambitious and determined to consolidate their own power. In a perfect world, the pharaoh and the queen would be seen as the center of all Egyptian life, just like their chosen god. In addition to forming the cult of Aten, the royal couple changed their names to reflect their devotion to Aten. Akhenaten's original name had been a copy of his father's, Amenhotep IV. Shortly after coming to power, he changed it to Akhenaten, which meant he who is beneficial to Aten. The young queen also adopted a second name, Neferneferuaten, or Beautiful Are the Beauties of Aten. From then on, she was called Neferneferuaten Nefertiti in all official inscriptions and artworks. Millennia later, the name change would cause great confusion among historians who were trying to chronicle a timeline of Nefertiti's life. Nefertiti's daughter's names were also evidence of their adulation of Aten. Meritaten, Mekataten, and Ankesenpaten. The first Theban temple to Aten was called the Hute Benben, or Mansion of the Benben Stone. It had originally been commissioned by Akhenaten's father, Amenhotep III, and the royal couple rushed to finish its construction after the old pharaoh's death. Reliefs found in the remains of the Hute Benben indicate that the temple was completed in haste, so that the cult of Aten might have a place to worship as soon as possible. The temple was built outside the city's center, which was controlled by the precinct of Amun-Ra. In the third year of their rule, circa 1348 BC, the city of Thebes celebrated Akhenaten and Nefertiti's jubilee, or Hebsed. The Hebsed was a festival traditionally held in the 30th year of a pharaoh's reign, and then every three or four years after that, celebrating the continued health and rule of the pharaoh. Akhenaten bucked tradition by holding the Hebsed just three years into his reign. The festival was meant to reaffirm an aging king's right to rule and renew his power, and holding it so early was a way for Nefertiti and Akhenaten to remind the nation of their authority. Holding the Hebsed early also increased the new royal's popularity, as the festival was a beloved time of celebration and feasting for all Egyptians. The ceremony took place at the new Aten Temple, and as was tradition, the royal family and dozens of foreign dignitaries were in attendance. But where the priests of other gods would normally have been invited, in shrines to many gods erected around the festival, Nefertiti and Akhenaten chose to flout both those traditions. At their Hebsed, the only shrines were to Aten, and the cult of Aten led the ceremonies. The most conspicuous snub was to the cult of Amun-Ra, who had for generations been the most celebrated and most influential god in Thebes. Scenes inscribed in the walls of Aten Temple depict the Jubilee. Instead of showing the pharaoh and his great queen bringing offerings to all the gods, the inscriptions only show them worshipping Aten. In the murals, Nefertiti and Akhenaten stand side by side before Aten, the disk of the sun, which extends many rays to rest upon the monarch's shoulders, indicating that they are the gods' favorites. Snubbing Amun-Ra and the other lesser gods at the Hebsed was only the beginning of Akhenaten and Nefertiti's religious revolution. 
the priests of Amun-Ra would have been right to worry about their place in the world after the Hebsed. After excluding the major gods from the royal jubilee, the pharaoh and his wife stopped donating money to any religious cult except their own, the cult of Aten. Nefertiti and Akhenaten's predecessors had always donated gifts of gold and food to the cults of Amun-Ra and those of several other state gods, but the new pharaoh and his wife refused to do so. Instead, they gave exclusively to the cult of Aten, which grew rich and prosperous while the other cults floundered. Temples closed down and their goods were diverted to the pharaoh, who in turn gave them to the cult of Aten. Religious festivals to other gods ceased, disrupting the calendar. Akhenaten and Nefertiti began striking the names of Amun-Ra and other gods from temples, and even destroyed any references to gods in the plural. They sought to upset the entire religious and intellectual structure of the state, which was engineered to grant power and influence to priests by making Aten the only god worth worshipping. They took a historically polytheistic government and made it pseudo-monotheistic. Ancient Egypt was a deeply religious country, and though people were inclined to follow their monarchs, they could not let go of their own favored gods. The cult of Amun-Ra in particular resisted the revolution. Thebes was a city built upon the worship of Amun-Ra, and a few short years of focus on the new god were not going to be enough to change that. Recognizing this, Akhenaten and Nefertiti decided that if they couldn't take Amun-Ra out of the capital, they would take the capital out of Thebes. In the fifth year of their rule, roughly 1346 BC, the pharaoh and great queen took their family, their armies, and all their servants and moved 200 miles north to a spot halfway between Thebes and the older northern Egyptian city of Memphis. Here, they established a new capital. They called the new city Akhetaten, or Horizon of Aten, though today it's more commonly known by its modern name, Amarna. The site was chosen both for its convenient position in the center of Egypt, hundreds of miles from the Amun-Ra stronghold in Thebes, and for its splendor. Amarna is located in a wide valley on the banks of the Nile, surrounded by high mountains. At dawn, the rising sun becomes the focal point of the city, framed by the mountains in a fitting homage to Aten. Akhenaten and Nefertiti built a magnificent city at Amarna, filled with temples and palaces. Images of Aten and of the royal couple were everywhere, pictured in temples, inscribed on buildings, sculpted as giant statues. Numerous open-air temples were built to celebrate Aten, and buildings were inscribed with images of the sun reaching down from the sky to touch Nefertiti and Akhenaten with his rays. Unlike other gods, Aten was never depicted as a humanoid figure. He was a faceless symbol, always positioned above the pharaoh and queen, but never a participant in their scenes. This made Akhenaten and Nefertiti the natural focus of any tableau they were in, rather than the god itself. Whereas Egyptian art in the past had been very rigid and perfect, showing pharaohs and gods as flawless, eternally youthful figures, Nefertiti and Akhenaten encouraged their artists to adopt a more naturalistic approach. Their favored art represented the realities of nature, just as their favored god represented creation and life. 
Art in Amarna kickstarted a new movement in Egyptian art, one that emphasized naturalism. Animals and plants were shown realistically and less stylized. Akhenaten and Nefertiti were shown mid-action instead of in kingly repose, and they were depicted expressing their affection for one another in ways previous rulers had not been. They touched each other and shared longing looks and played with their family, which now included six children. Shortly after their move to Amarna, Nefertiti had given birth to three more daughters, Nefer-Neferuatan-Tasheret, Nefer-Neferuure, and Setapenre. Akhenaten even allowed artists to show his father, the aging and fat former pharaoh, exactly as he was. In previous generations, such an unflattering reality would have never been recorded. Art in Amarna evolved quickly as artists embraced the freedom to depict their rulers with fluid lines, wrinkles, and imperfections. Nefertiti had no inhibitions about her body and frequently dressed in open-front, robe-like dresses of thin gossamer material, cinched at the waist. Her daughters followed her example. She was also shown taking on increasingly active roles in the government. In one image, she is depicted in front of an Aten altar with her arms outstretched, holding a small statue of Ma'at, the goddess of truth. This statue was the traditional offering of a pharaoh, not a great queen. In that same picture, Nefertiti's firstborn daughter, Meritaten, takes on the traditional queen's role in the offering ceremony, standing behind her mother and ringing the sistrum, a bell-covered rattle. This image shows how important Nefertiti was to the cult of Aten and Egypt as a whole. She took on many of the religious duties traditionally reserved only for the pharaoh himself. An even more explicit depiction of Nefertiti's power was carved at Amarna, symbolically showing the great queen acting as a warrior. In the inscription, Nefertiti is shown in a striding stance, one hand grasping a knife above her head while the other grips a kneeling enemy by the hair. Throughout ancient Egypt, only pharaohs were depicted in this particular stance, dishing out judgment to a foe and, by extension, defending the people of Egypt. Nefertiti is the only great queen depicted this way in the entirety of Egyptian history. It's unclear if Nefertiti actually participated in this kind of ritual killing or if the inscription is wholly symbolic, but it is clear to historians that the picture is meant to show Nefertiti as a king in her own right, equal to her husband the pharaoh in every way. But Nefertiti and Akhenaten's revolutionary rule was not destined to last, and soon disaster would come knocking at their palace doors. We'll cover the final years of Nefertiti's life and the mystery surrounding her death right after this. Now back to the story. Queen Nefertiti and Pharaoh Akhenaten ruled ancient Egypt from Amarna for many years following the move to the city in 1346 BC. They revolutionized art and religion, and the great queen's position in the government while also continuing to protect the huge empire their predecessors had built. But the new paradise had its foes, none more threatening than the growing Hittite empire in the Middle East, which promised to become a powerful political rival. The Hittites were a group of several different ancient peoples united in modern-day Turkey, under strong leaders who aimed to expand their influence all over the Middle East. 
as the two most powerful empires in the region, Egypt and the Hittites were locked in constant political tension throughout the 18th dynasty. Nefertiti and Akhenaten wrote numerous letters to their vassals, their allies, and even their rivals in the interest of keeping tabs on the world. Many of these inscribed tablets survived and were discovered at Amarna in the late 1880s. These Amarna letters show that Akhenaten and Nefertiti were not only concerned with altering the religious and political structure of ancient Egypt, but with the more practical problems of ruling a vast empire. In the late 1330s BC, two major things happened. Representatives from every nation in the Egyptian empire gathered for a huge international pageant, paying tribute to the pharaoh and great queen. And shortly thereafter, almost every single reference to Nefertiti mysteriously disappeared. The Syrians, Libyans, Sudanese, and Nubians all sent envoys to Amarna laden with gifts for Akhenaten and Nefertiti. Gold, spices, furniture, and exotic animals were laid at the feet of the empire's rulers in a show of their subjugates' loyalty. The only surviving complete picture of the entire royal family was inscribed sometime during this pageant and shows the pharaoh and great queen seated side by side receiving their gifts while their six daughters stand behind them. This is one of the last known images of Nefertiti. No one knows for sure why she suddenly disappeared. For years, modern historians have debated about the sudden disappearance of the queen. One theory is that Nefertiti was taken by a plague. This would track with the chronology of the time. Around the 13th year of Akhenaten's rule, a plague swept through Egypt, killing the second-born princess, Mekhetaten, and her two youngest sisters, Neferneferuaten and Setepenre, as well as Akhenaten's mother, Ti, and one of Akhenaten's secondary wives. It is possible that Nefertiti passed away as well, but it would seem odd that historians have never found actual textual evidence to confirm this. Another theory is that Nefertiti simply went by a different name, as pharaohs were sometimes known to do after she was elevated to co-regnant of Egypt in a move that made her equal in power and status to her husband. There's some evidence that she was sometimes referred to as Ankeperure Neferneferuaten in official documents. It is possible that the artists and writers of the time simply stopped using the name Nefertiti after the change. Others theorize that Nefertiti might have been purposely struck from the record that she was disgraced in some way or banished from the empire. Archaeologists found the remains of monuments to a wife of Akhenaten that seemed to have been intentionally destroyed. Some thought these might be evidence that Nefertiti overstepped her role and offended the pharaoh. That theory has fallen out of fashion lately because the destroyed monuments were found to actually be representations of Kia, one of Akhenaten's secondary wives. Recently, Egyptologists have begun to favor a theory that Nefertiti actually lived on after her daughter's deaths and might have even become a pharaoh in her own right a few years later. A strong piece of evidence supporting this theory was to discovered in 2012 when Egyptologist Athena van der Peer translated a fragment of building inscription found in an ancient quarry. The inscription explicitly mentions Nefertiti in Amarna 16 years after Akhenaten first became pharaoh. Nefertiti is also still referred to as the Great Queen in the inscription, disproving theories that she had previously died or been banished. Well, this means that Nefertiti lived through and grieved the deaths of three of her children during the plague. 
and also that the theory she changed her name as she took on a more kingly role in the government is probably correct. After that last inscription from 1335 BC, Nefertiti again disappears from the historical record, leading historians to speculate that she may have become a pharaoh in her own right after Akhenaten's death of unknown causes around 1334 BC. Two pharaohs replaced Akhenaten in quick succession. The first of these successors was the pharaoh Smenkare, who only reigned for one year. Nefertiti and Akhenaten's daughter, Meritaten, was Smenkare's great royal wife. Historians and scientists alike have debated the identity and even the gender of Smenkare, whose remains could either be those of a very young man or of a woman. Well, this leads some to speculate that perhaps Smenkare was an alias for Nefertiti, who had herself depicted as a man in later records in order to emphasize her own power. She named Meritaten as her great queen in order to consolidate the power within her own family. Another theory is that Nefertiti was actually the ruler who took the throne directly after Smenkare's time as pharaoh. This next pharaoh was called Nefer-Neferuaten, which, as we've said, was the name Nefertiti adopted shortly after she and Akhenaten formed the cult of Aten. Nefertiti was already an established ruler, having proven herself a capable co-regent during Akhenaten's reign. After the failure of Smenkare, it would not be unreasonable to think Nefertiti might have taken over as pharaoh in order to keep Egypt afloat until the next male heir could inherit the throne. This theory is somewhat complicated by the fact that Nefer-Neferuaten was also the name of Nefertiti's fourth daughter. But most historians don't think this daughter could have been the pharaoh Nefer-Neferuaten because she would have been only about 10 or 11 years old at the time of the pharaoh's ascension. While it was fairly common for pharaohs to assume the throne at a very young age, it was unheard of for a ruler to be both female and prepubescent. Nefer-Neferuaten had a very short reign of barely two years, but she ruled alone as a female pharaoh with no need to conceal her gender. She held court from Amarna, but also appears to have repealed some of Akhenaten's more stringent religious reforms, relaxing restrictions on priesthoods and religious cults devoted to gods other than Aten. Nefer-Neferuaten did not try to force monotheism on Egypt as Akhenaten had. She did not stop Egyptians from worshipping the hundreds of gods whom they had always worshipped though she did maintain the cult of Aten and kept Aten as the only official state god. She died, however, sometime around 1332 BC, leaving the throne open to Akhenaten's son by a secondary wife, Tutankhamun, or King Tut. King Tutankhamun did not share his father's passion for Aten and quickly reverted back to the traditional Egyptian polytheism. The cult of Amun-Ra once again assumed the position as the most powerful religious order, and Tut abandoned Amarna to re-establish the capital in Thebes. Steps were taken to wipe Akhenaten and Nefertiti from the historical record. Akhenaten's burial place was desecrated, and his sarcophagus mask destroyed. Statues and inscriptions of Nefertiti and Akhenaten from their early years in Thebes were torn down and wiped clean. Nefertiti's remains have never been found or identified. 
It seems likely that she would have been buried at Amarna, at least initially, though she may have been moved to the traditional Valley of the Kings in Thebes at some point. It seems likely that her tomb was intentionally hidden, either by King Tut or one of his successors. There are even some historians who speculate that King Tut's tomb was originally intended for Nefertiti, but was repurposed for Tutankhamun. As we said, incest was quite common within the royal Egyptian families. After several generations, this began to result in debilitating birth defects. King Tut, for example, was born frail and suffered from a genetic bone disease that left him crippled for most of his life. When he died suddenly at the young age of 18, it is possible that his predetermined tomb wasn't ready for him. So his family ousted Nefertiti's mummy and replaced her with King Tut. There's decent evidence to support this theory. Tut's tomb is noticeably smaller than that of the other pharaohs of the time. In fact, size-wise, the tomb would seem to be much more appropriate for a queen like Nefertiti. Some of the canopic jars containing his organs have distinctly feminine features, leading some to believe they may have been emptied of Nefertiti's remains and repurposed for King Tut. The pharaohs after King Tut labeled Akhenaten and Nefertiti heretics and wiped their names from the list of kings. Tut loyalists did everything in their power to erase Nefertiti and Akhenaten from history, and it was not until the turn of the 19th century AD that their great city at Amarna was rediscovered. Beginning in 1891, a British Egyptologist named Flinders Petrie excavated huge portions of Amarna and introduced the modern world to the beautiful, powerful Queen Nefertiti. Because Nefertiti and Akhenaten were so deeply ingrained in every aspect of life at Amarna, and because the city was so thoroughly abandoned after their deaths, there are still numerous artifacts which survived from their reign. Though she lived over 3,000 years ago, we know a lot about Nefertiti's life, what she looked like, who she loved, how she became more than just a queen, and managed to rule an empire with her husband and possibly by herself. There are still many mysteries to solve regarding the life and death of one of Egypt's most famous and recognizable queens, but new discoveries are made every day. It goes to show that some stories refuse to remain buried. We're still uncovering the history of this remarkable woman, but Nefertiti's story is far from over. Thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Historical Figures, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Colleen Bradley and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.